Order. Order. I mean it. I will have order in this court. Now then, to the defendant, Mr. Ralph Hermes Vuitton, you may deliver your statement. Thank you, Your Honor. May I say with great humility, I'm humbled by the privilege to address this court. Very humbled, humblingly so. Because as everyone knows, we at Ralph Vuitton are a humble, ethical, caring, socially responsible, innovative brand, and we pay record dividends. The simple fact is we didn't know, and our promise is we will do better. We can't know everything our suppliers do. It's unrealistic. We have thousands of them. We change them all the time. Some employees even work from home. Are we supposed to visit them too? I mean, what would happen to my designer trench coat in those neighborhoods? It would be ruined. Order! Come on now. Let's have a little order here. Right. Now, Mr. Vuitton, please keep to the point. Yes, Your Honor. To put it simply, did we make the building a fire trap with no escape? No, we didn't. Did we ban the workers from organizing together or cut their pay? No, it wasn't us. Can you blame me that women are constantly harassed in the workplace? That's outrageous. Let me finish with this point. Your Honor, could I say how stylish you would look in a bold red faux leather coat? For you, it would be an affordable 175 euros. But if we had to pay for all the things they propose, why, it could go up to 176. We'd be bankrupt. Thank you, Your Honor. And why are you giving me your business card, Mr. Vuitton? Just if you're interested in that faux leather coat, Your Honor. This is not a sales pitch, Mr. Ralph Hermes Vuitton. We are in a court of law. Do you understand? the courtroom of the future, where brands must prove that they take care of human rights in their whole supply chain. I'm Fabrina Firdos. Welcome to episode 3 of the Clean Clothes Podcast. Today, we talk about human rights due diligence and making laws to keep brand honest. Human rights abuse includes stolen wages, sexual harassment, and union busting. It has also cost many workers their lives. This is Nasir Mansur, General Secretary of the National Trade Union Federation, or NTUF, in Pakistan. There was a uh, tragedy in September 2012, where in a factory there was a fire and 260 workers died in that factory, and that factory was producing merchandise for a German brand. Its name was Cake. So when we look into the law, even Pakistani law and in, uh, European Union law, German law, we didn't get any uh, space for the workers to go for uh, filing of a case and make them accountable for it. So in that context, we get to know that uh, we should have a, a, not only in a Pakistan, but, but also in European Union, there would be a, some kind of a, a law or some kind of a mechanism to make them account for. 
unfortunately after filing a case in dortmund against a kick in german court uh, after 3 years of hearing the court verdict that uh, on technically on pakistani laws that uh, it was a time bar issue the push for human rights supply chain laws has a long history trade unions and ngo have campaigned on it for decades a key moment was 10 years ago this is muriel tribes lobby and advocacy coordinator for clean clothes campaign international office of course a lot of the initial efforts were pushed by uh, ngos and and trade unions that highlighted really uh, important cases and important situations where that would happen and so for years they brought information reports they communicated they campaigned about those issues and progressively that led to also to the international recognition that that was an issue and that was something that international institutions governments the united nations had to look at in 2011 when you had the united nations that published their first guiding principles on business and human rights and what it says is that that first states have an obligation to ensure uh, the respect of human rights but that also companies have a responsibility to protect human rights and that was let's say one of the first recognition and one of the biggest recognition that yes international companies have a responsibility to protect human rights across their supply chain and not only um in the companies and in the operations they fully own and they fully control the human rights due diligence you have a, a number of steps that you have to do first let's say you have to identify what are the risks in your supply chain what are the potential negative impacts on human rights and lab and labor rights that exist in your supply chain once you identify the risk and the uh, negative impacts then you have to take steps to seize to to make sure that those risks are are stopped or are prevented or are mitigated and then you have to track whether that the measures that you implemented are put in place you have to communicate on that and then you have to provide for um remedies when when appropriate until today we on except in france we only have voluntary human rights agencies there is no obligation for companies to actually protect human rights like that and to use human uh, human rights agencies to do it and if they do not uh, follow those principles there are uh, no uh, le- legally binding sanctions and that's an obvious problem if it's voluntary then actually most companies and i'm talking about europe most companies in europe including the large companies are not doing human rights agencies are not actively working on protecting human rights and for the few who do so they actually do it on a really limited scope So that's why we're talking now about mandatory human rights agencies because the objective is to make sure that companies are not doing it on their own decision but that they have a legal obligation to do it and that they can be sanctioned if they do not do it uh, properly. So far, only France has passed a law on human rights due diligence in supply chains. 
collective ESE or collective ethics behind the label was central to that campaign. Neila Aljatuni is the collective's coordinator. I think everything changes when the UN uh, elaborated and adopted the UN guiding principles, the RAGI principles on business and human rights. And it was really the start of a, of a big ref internal reflection at uh, Collective Ethics on Etiquette with unions and NGOs, and especially some of them. Um, and um, as a coordinator, I, I thought it was important to to be able to analyze and be familiar with this framework. And I proposed to the network to organize a big um, symposium at the National Assembly uh, on this question around different roundtables. Uh, I think the fact that we, at some point, were all gathered in one same uh, civil society platform, we already had as a common um, goal um, to focus on transnational companies and to make them um, 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 respect the law, a law that we would have to build. In 2012, France also elected the Socialist Party to government. That gave the campaign a real political opportunity. We identified MPs that would uh, be not committed enough to build legislation, uh, and we uh, worked to mobilize civil society towards this new legislation. The second trigger was this terrible accident, um, this human-created disaster, as Calpona said, uh, of the Rana Plaza, because it created a huge, uh, of course, uh, it shocked everybody. And as I often say, for us, uh, labor rights movement, it was a shock, but it was not a surprise. Uh, so we were like prepared to, to and, and our argument were already there. Our strategy was already there. We knew that we could sell this kind of law to the public as, as general interest law and not something for NGOs or people abroad, but really something of general interest. We, 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 we can't, uh, transnational companies can't decide upon the lives of so many people without being uh, accountable of anything. We really managed to have a pool of media and different kind of media, and especially medias uh, uh, read by public authorities and economic word on what this law and due diligence is. We also uh, focused a lot on uh, outing the economical word, uh, federal uh, um, um, federation of uh, employers and federation of big companies, because they were really um, working, you know, in a very secret way. Their lobbying was really strong and they had direct access. They have already direct access to the power. And we, we manage and we, we try to, to make them express publicly why they are against such, such laws. And for the first time, one of the biggest federations, for example, was obliged to, to say and to speak about their position in, in, in main newspaper. And this had an important um, um, impact uh, especially on MPs. Companies use familiar arguments to oppose these laws. The, for the private sector, uh, the, the, first, the first concern they, they were raising was the cost. It will cost too much. It will be too difficult. How can you ask us to uh, make sure that everything in our supply chain is uh, human rights and labor rights uh, compliant? It's, it's too big. Uh, we don't have control over those entities. So their first um, reaction was to point out the cost 
and the complexity. When it comes to the complexity of supply chain, especially in the garment sector, it's not something that just comes up. It's not, you know, like garment supply chains are not a natural occurrence on earth. It's something that companies actually create and think about. And that was a conscious business choice by the companies. So they created the complexity and now they're complaining that the supply chains are too complex to control them. The French campaign was successful. The law passed in 2017, but it also fell short. Naila says it is just one step towards change. Let's say four years campaigning with uh, ups and downs, with a lot of euphoric moments and a lot of very depressive moments. It's not the the text civil society would have uh, or had a campaign for. There is no criminal uh, liability, for example. Uh, but we also knew that it was we, we were uh, working on a compromise, a small legal revolution as a first step. The objective for us was to make a breach in transnational impunity and to enlarge this breach at the European level. But we know that the, the European level would, wouldn't work if one of the important countries and France hold, uh, hosts uh, one-third, I guess, of the biggest European companies had this extreme responsibility to start building a law. Uh, so we even published a document with the weaknesses of the French law and lessons learned that we spread already to the network, to the MPs, to the MEPs. Oh, uh, our advocacy work is now has now started to um, encourage uh, uh, MEPs to uh, build on those lesson le- lesson learned lessons learned and the commission, of course, not to repeat the weaknesses of the French law and to have a much more ambitious um, directive on duty of care or duty of vigilance. It was really, uh, really, really significant that France passes such a law. It gives a precedent. It shows that it's possible that, that you can impose obligations on companies on those issues and that other countries in Europe that Europe itself and countries outside of Europe can also implement, uh, impose similar obligations on their companies. The whole argument of we didn't know, it was too far away, we could not, never have imagined, those arguments would not play anymore. That actually companies have an obligation to know, they have an obligation to look for the information. And that's extremely important. Like Naila says, the French law is a first brick in corporate impunity. The European Commission plans to debate supply chains legislation later this year. Other campaigns are pushing to open this brick further. That includes survivors from the Ali Enterprise fire. Nasir from Pakistan anti-UF again. Because of uh, no legal and uh, legislation in the European Union and especially in Germany, the brands get uh, some kind of a sigh of relief. They can't uh, understand and they can't uh, learn the lesson from it, but they think that uh, they can escort free. But if there, we, if there would have been a, a law, they must be punished one of our victim association chairperson 
Saida Khatun, whose son was also died in that factory. She went to Belgium. She went to uh, European Union. She talked with the different political parties, social demo in Germany. She also talked with the different political parties and trade union and pressed for a legislation or a law as to make the uh, German and the European companies accountable for whatever the crime they committed anywhere in the globe. In early February, Germany published a drive supply chains law. A vote on the law is promised for this year. Calling the next witness, please state your name and profession. I'm Kanya Adil. I'm a tailor and I represent the union on my floor. Please tell the court the nature of your complaint. I have many complaints. Firstly, our factory is dangerous. There is material piled up everywhere ready to burn and the escape routes are locked. The board says, oh, don't worry about fire. Would he say the same thing to the worker who died in the Ari Intrapai fire in Karachi? <laughs> Secondly, our wages are barely enough to feed my family. Judge, my little girl was top of the class last year, but now I can't afford to send her to school. I asked, would Mr. Victor let that happen to his daughter? It's not just that our pay is too low. Sometimes they pay us late, sometimes not at all. The board doesn't tell us anything. Are you saying the brand knew about all this? They don't want to know. We didn't get to talk to them anyway. My union tried to complain, but the boss, he threatened me. He came so close, I could smell his breath. It smelled worse than the pollution from the factory. Your Honor, he said the police would come. It doesn't feel safe. So I went to my auntie village for a while. It was amazing there. The factory used to be light hours, but now they are all getting better wages and the factory is safe. My aunt told me about the new supply chain laws and about this court. I always thought the law was just for the rich and the company always won. But you seem a nice judge. Ms. Adil, please stick to the point. We're not after compliments here. Thank you. I've finished, Your Honor. But may I ask, do you know who does your robes and where they come from? You should find out about that. Europe holds the clearest promise for human rights supply chain laws. The United States doesn't have laws like this one on the table, but change might still be coming. Scott Nova is executive director of the Worker Rights Consortium. The U.S. Tariff Act has always prohibited the importation specifically of goods made with forced labor. But, but for most of the life of that law, there was a loophole that prevented it from being enforceable. And that loophole was eliminated uh, during the last years of the Obama administration. Uh, and over the ensuing, now going on five years, there has been an attempt uh, within the U.S. government at an administrative level to begin to enforce that law. 
the big question is how serious will that enforcement push be? Now, one area where we're seeing the the relevance of that uh, legal provision uh, very clearly is in the forced labor crisis in the Uyghur region of China. And because about one-fifth of the world's cotton is grown in that region, the brands and retailers around the world to sell cotton garments are neck deep in this forced labor crisis. The standard the U.S. government is applying is this. If the company should have known, either did know or should have known that forced or traffic labor was used, uh, then that company and the executives who made the relevant decisions have broken U.S. criminal as well as civil law, and the executives could be prosecuted, convicted, and go to jail. If that happens, um, the, the, it would send shockwaves through corporate America. And if, if the executives of these corporations understand that they can be held criminally accountable, they can go to jail for the ways in which they exploit workers in their supply chains, well, that's a night and day change from the regime that's prevailed up until now. And so it will be very interesting to see, to say the least, whether the U.S. government actually enforces its laws uh, and changes that culture uh, in ways that could have a very profound impact on the lives of, of workers all across the globe. If it's illegal to import a product made with forced labor, why is it legal to import a product made through other abuses of fundamental worker rights? Why is it legal to import a product made in a factory where the workers are subjected systematically to sexual harassment, have to have sex with their supervisors in order to keep their jobs? Why is it legal to import goods from a factory where every time workers try to organize a union, the managers threaten to kill them? Why is it legal to import a product from a factory where the employer systematically underpays workers relative to the legal minimum wage. Right now it is legal, but it's very difficult to defend that status quo. The vast majority of people in the US, ordinary people in the US would agree that that should be illegal. And once that discussion begins to happen, there is the potential that that discussion will take off and capture public interest and that you might see real momentum, real momentum uh, toward change. Now, if that happens, there'll be enormous pushback uh, from corporations and their lobby. Uh, but, but if that battle happens, uh, it's not a foregone conclusion that the corporations will win. Right now, that discussion isn't happening, but, but I think that it will begin to happen in the not too distant future. Campaigners know that supply chain laws will not fix everything, but they can help change the balance. It's one more tool. The, the objective is to fill out the gap. But that law would, of course, have to work in conjunction and supporting other developments. And for, let's say, for instance, if supply chain law gave the obligation of companies to make sure that they cannot make profits out of human rights violations anymore, then that could also help uh, develop stronger uh, give an incentive also to governments to develop stronger national laws or stronger enforcement of national laws. With such a law, for instance, companies will have an obligation to engage with stakeholders on, on the risks and on the negative impacts and to, to show that actually when they've, did, when they've done their assessment on the situation, it's not only the company that did it on their own, but they also... Uh, engaged with the people 
uh, affected or impacted by the business operations. And I think that that obligation, that expectation that stakeholders need to be involved may also support the fact that companies will now have a bigger obligation to ensure that freedom of association and collective bargaining are better respected in the supply chain. There is no change and there is a no behavioral or a practicing change from the brands. Everything is going as usual. So that's why we think that uh, there should be a, some kind of a legislation and some kind of a mandatory things abiding by the law. That, that can be a work. When the trade union or the labor movement is a weak one, then it will more depend on our laws and the instruments like that. Yeah, We use that one, uh, these instruments, to cope with the situation. This is not the ideal situation for us. And we understand that uh, these can't, every time these can't work. But still, we put pressure through these instruments on them workers will get uh, some kind of a uh, sigh of relief and some kind of a uh, uh, weapon in their hand to whenever there is a situation arise they can use that one that uh, instrument and that kind of a uh, weapons so i think that uh, there are number of uh, multidimensional uh, campaigns and the movements and the strategies to to get uh, workers right and workers right be protected Organization is the one aspect. Another one is uh, international solidarity from the pro-worker organization and the working class. And then we have the, some kind of a law. It is It might be a local one, international, or the regional laws also. All these uh, kind of uh, framework can help the workers to get some kind of uh, leverage to resolve their issues. This is an SPIN News Flash, and I'm Rush Daly. In breaking news, we have a verdict in the Ralph Vuitton case. Our reporter, Eva True, is at the scene. Eva, tell us what's happened. Yes, Rush, the court has made its decision, and it's not what Ralph Vuitton was hoping. The company has to fix workplace safety and make sure workers are paid the right wages. They also must allow the workers to organize freely. Vuitton insisted he never knew what was happening, so he wasn't to blame. The judge's verdict was familiar for anyone following these cases. She said Vuitton had to know, and if he didn't, it's on him. The law makes it quite clear that companies must know what's going on with their suppliers and also show the public that they know this. Know and show. We keep hearing that these days. It looks like Vuitton is more show than know. You could certainly say that, Rush. Vuitton said it was like taking the shirt off his back, although we know it's probably more like a couple of cheap cufflinks. Rush, I have the star witness with me here, Kanya Adil. Kanya, you must be very happy with this decision. Yes, thank you very much. We are very happy. It gives us a chance. We don't expect our bosses to easily give us everything we want today. But now, we can fight for our rights with the law behind us. It looks like your friends want to celebrate with you. Yes, we will have a big, big feat tonight. Woohoo! You should come! Thank you, Kanya. Finally, is there anything you'd like to say to Ralph Vuitton? 
Mr. Victong is welcome to eat with us too. And if he needs a new shirt for his bed, we are happy to make him one. But only for a fair price. who might appear in this court of the future? It might be Ralph Fitton or Zara Lawrence or Levi Boss. But maybe it is getting closer. That's the end of our show. Please email your ideas, feedback, and questions at this address, podcast at cleanclothes.org. You can also see the email address on the podcast webpage, Matthew Abut produced this episode with Anna Decker and the Clean Clothes podcast team. Liz Parker, Tane De Huy, and Johnson Chinyin Yerm. Steve Adams was on sound engineering support and the sound for the court of the future. I'm Fabriana Firdaus. See you next time.